Hi, I'm Rob Buckingham, and welcome to episode 25 of Digging Deeper. This is a weekly podcast that takes a deep dive into a theme or subject and explores what the Bible has to say about it. In this week's episode, Shane Willard and I continue our discussions on the book of Revelation. We'll chat about the apocalypse, heaven on earth, rapture anxiety, the two witnesses, and the everlasting open gates. But we'll begin by focusing on a listener's question. How do we help fellow Christians in understanding these teachings. Uh, they go on here, I worry that apocalypse thinking drives us to oppress others, uh, not care for our God-given earth because we're expecting the world to end soon. And we saw, I think it was John MacArthur recently in America, he preached a message. Uh, I mean, he doesn't believe in climate change anyway, and he preached a message why we don't actually need to care for the planet because it's only temporary. It's God made it to be disposable, so why care for it anyway? Do you want to speak into that kind of stuff in the yeah. context of Revelation? Sure, and I think I think whoever wrote that question is incredibly astute um, mm. because the way you – a couple things. Words matter less than how we picture words working, and the way you see – if the, the way you see the narrative of God moving – then get stamped into our highest priorities in terms of values morally and and ethically. So sure. uh, so let's start with let's start with I'm going to I'm going to reverse engineer that quite that that question and comment down into some pieces. So first, um words matter less than how we picture words working. So let's take the word apocalypse. So um if you if you google search apocalypse and you know on a google search it'll say news and then next to it it'll say image so yeah. if you Google search apocalypse and click image, the primary images of apocalypse are meteor showers, things being destroyed, nuclear war. One of the pictures is uh, four multicolored horse ghost looking people. Um, you might get um, because of the Walking Dead, you might get the zombies uh, um, walking around. The, 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 the common theme of the images around the word apocalypse is um, the end of things. Um, but. When the Bible was written, the word apocalypse actually just means to uncover something. Yeah. Um, it's I'm going to show you the thing behind the thing. Um, yeah. it, it, it wasn't about the future. It was about the present. That, that's one. Uh, two, it was meant to uncover the thing behind the thing. And in Scripture, there are two types of apocalypses. There are individual apocalypses. And what I mean by that is individual uncoverings. We might call that a revelation. Like I had a revelation of what was behind this. So you you, you see that um, in the prophet uh, Isaiah, for, in a lot of the prophets, Ezekiel had them. Like Ezekiel saying, "I'm I'm seeing um, wheels within wheels and eyes within eyes." And and I mean, these are obviously this is a symbolic vision of something behind something. Um, it, Isaiah had a, a, an, an imagery of, of this. Daniel is a great example. So theopoetic apocalyptic um, sort of genre thought uh, was not uncommon to the Jewish people, but it wasn't intended to be solely about the future. It was more. 
I'm going to uncover something here. In a present sense tense, Paul had one where he's on the road to Emmaus and, and um, he has this uncovering the, 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 the things come off of his eye. He gets blinded, but then the things come off his eyes and he's able to, to see that the thing he actually is for, he's actually fighting against. Um, and, and so you have that. And then underneath that, you have a second type of apocalypse, which is apocalyptic genre literature. And, and yeah. that, and so, but it's important to, to understand that like when Revelation was written, for instance, this was not, uh, and actually the early church, when they included it into the scriptures, they said that one of the conditions was that it was not to be read as a prediction of the future, but yeah. rather a commentary on the present, that it was a call to worship primarily, and that it was a commentary on the present, and it was a, a a commentary and a challenge on where our actions or inactions are participating with the oppressive nature of the empire um, or or um, participating with the narrative of the slain lamb. So so you, you, you have that. So if you if you see apocalypse and your primary image is the earth is being destroyed and God wants it that way, um, then, then it can justify all. I can completely absolve my. I mean, John MacArthur's view is actually very understandable. If your yeah. first notion is is that God's God's ordained narrative is taking this thing to a destruction, well, then if I help destroy it, I'm sort of helping the thing along. Well, um, if I don't look after it then it doesn't matter, you know, and it's like I, I shared this at Bayside a while ago and I said, you know, that kind of attitude, just because you're going to get a new one doesn't mean you trash the one you've got, you know. It's like I might have an old car, but if all I've got is an old car, I want to look after that old car. Right. I'm not going to, you know, rip up my couch because one day I'm going to get a new couch. I mean, right. where, where does that sort of logic come and, in? You know? Yeah, and I would say too that if you go all the way back to the Genesis story where I'd say it this way, part of man's perceived interpreted meaning for their life is in how they take responsibility for the earth. Yeah. And so um, and so when we absolve ourselves of responsibility for the earth, then we will necessarily interpret our our existence for having less meaning, which then creates a whole slew of mental health issues in all kinds of things. And so I think it's important to remember that the Bible is a whole narrative leading to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. And, um, and in the beginning of the scripture, there's a new creation coming to the earth. And at the end of the scripture, there's a new creation coming to the earth and everything in the middle of the scriptures is about God making a bunch of new creations on the earth to prepare the earth for the new creation coming to the earth. So if the beginning of the Bible is about God doing something on the earth and the end of the Bible is about God doing something on the earth and everything in the middle is about God doing something on the earth, then how on earth did better make it about going somewhere else? Um, and so, and so if, so I'm going to handle the follow-up question to that, which, um, would surely be in people's mind is, is what about when it says that, that the heaven, there was a new heaven, new earth for the first heaven, first earth passed away. Right. So, so what are we talking about there? And so there's a, there's a couple ways to read that. Um, and, um, one, and I want to be clear about this and I know I don't need to say this to you because you and I have established this a long time ago, but that doesn't mean everybody listening to this has, and that is that, um, if the world sees us in discussion about things like this, may the Christ that holds us all together be glorified more than we need to be right about something. Right. Um, yeah. And so, and I want to be clear that there are fully devoted followers of Jesus who read it both ways. 
and, yep. and I would never break relationship with them over a disagreement with this. But one way is that they read it literally and they go, well, Earth's going to explode and there's going to be a new Earth and a new heaven. Um, and there's there, that's that's one way to read it. The, the, the problem with that, and I think they would admit the issue with that is, is that the entire book of Revelation is symbolic. And so you have whores on horses and you've got death and hell riding horse back and you've got army army clad locusts and you've got you've got symbolism, 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 symbolism. Oh, no, but that's real. That's literal. Right. Yeah. You're going, hang on. You're just suddenly going to put in something very literal in the middle of all this symbolism. Because um, uh, and then right after that, you've got people wearing white. You know, and I, I once again, obviously symbolic. Um, the other way to read it is that um, is that the way we knew the system of the earth to work has been renewed, restored, reconciled, and heaven has invaded earth. Um, and so it's a metaphor around the way of the world passing away and a new way coming in. The third way to read it, which I find quite interesting, is that in Jewish consciousness, the place where heaven and earth were one was in Jerusalem at the temple. And so they've, they, their primary dominant image of where's the one place on, on earth that you can go where heaven and earth have come together, and that was the temple in Jerusalem. And, of course, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., and John is writing after that. And so for him to go, um, he, the heaven, the old heaven and earth, the temple— had passed away, don't despair. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Um, in other words, there'll be another place, another temple where God's presence and people dwell together, um, namely you and me. So, so there's 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 three ways to read it, all by fully devoted followers of Jesus. So there's the literal, um, then there's the there's the symbolic. Um, and then there is the the hybrid, which is which is saying John is clearly talking about an event that actually happened just before he wrote this book in Jerusalem, where heaven and earth would have passed away, the temple. And so there's got to be something God's doing that's new. Now, um, one of those ways, the literal um, this this whole thing is going to be destroyed, um, can lead us to absolving ourselves from our responsibility to take care of the earth and um and to and to be a good neighbor and to actually um be a part of making this earth um more or better inhabitable for our grandchildren than it is today um yeah. and once again if you read the end of that completely literally i get why you would think that um but maybe there's another way to read it maybe this is um a theopoetic apocalyptic literature giving hope to people who would have lived some of them in their lifetime thinking the only place heaven and earth come together is in the temple in jerusalem and they just absolutely ransack that thing and and it's this horrible oppressive empire system that we'll call the beast um that that won it won the beast won and, and Revelation is like, and Revelation acknowledges, especially in the middle chapters. Yeah, it looks like he, looks like he did. There's these two witnesses, and the beast killed them. And there's an angel with a message of God, and he has to eat it, and it's sweet to his mouth, but bitter in his belly. There's these obviously all symbolism, and uh, and and these people have lived with the despair of what do we do? 
what do we do now that heaven and earth has passed away? And John just sort of makes this assumption. Oh, when something passes away, there's all it, it like death never gets the last word. There, there's always, if, if resurrection is not a belief, but a fundamental way of seeing the world, then if the first heaven and first earth passed away, I think the way he words it is, and behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth to pass away. It's like, well, if something dies, of course there's something new coming. Like, like, yeah. like, like this assumption of resurrection being a way of seeing the world. And so with that, um, it puts a whole new, a whole new light on our responsibility to take care of our planet. Yeah. It is the only one we have. Yeah. And to take care of one another. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to me, Shane, all of this is really, really important. Um, you know, I, I lead a church, as you know, my, my number one passion is pastoring people and loving people and taking people on that journey of of knowing God more, becoming more like Jesus, you know. Mm. Um, and I, I, I mean, I used to buy into the whole literal futurist thing. And, you know, that was a really big thing for me and for you and I know for a lot of other people as well. But over the process of time, I started looking at the Bible differently and particularly the book of Revelation differently. And, and you know, after you've heard uh, your 52nd um, uh, pronouncement of this is the end only to come out again, it's wrong, right? <laughs> so yeah. every announcement of end of the world, every one of them has been wrong so far. Um, with, and, and all it does is it, it disillusions people. Um, I've, I hear a lot of fear from people. You know, I've, I've had some emails last week from a lady from Adelaide um, and she just, she heard our first conversation and she was just grappling with this. She said, I'm a young mum, I've got a two-year-old and, and I'm petrified. I, I keep hearing all these conspiracies about COVID being in the book of Revelation and the rapture and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and so to me, this is a pastoral thing that we actually get this, um, not right, but 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 a but a good understanding of what the original purpose of the Book of Revelation is. Its original purpose was not to scare the living daylights out of God's people. In fact, I would suggest it was completely the opposite of that. Yeah, and I think that's the big point: is how how many intellectual hula hoops do you have to do to totally and completely the abandon abandon the original intent of the original author. If the original intent of the original author was to give hope to seven churches in Asia Minor that were living under the horrendous oppression of an empire that they nicknamed the beast, and then suddenly we interpret it in such a way that scares the living stew out of people. How, yeah. So something that was originally written to give hope is now, and but to be fair, not to scare people, but to challenge them to are, is my behavior participating in the beast system or is it participating in the lamb narrative? Um, so, so I don't think that should induce fear, but it should make me go, is it, is my, is the way I'm living my life participating in the system of the beast or participating in the narrative of the lamb? If we're not asking that question, I think we're missing the point, but I should be able to ask that question without being terrified about meteorites and yeah. you know whatever else and 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 it's unfortunate that um that that uh became a primary narrative in the last 180 years or something but it was nowhere ever in the in the early church um no. and, um or early jewish scholarship 
um, early church scholarship like Ignatius, uh, Athanasius, um, Arian, uh, John the theologian. It was nowhere in their writings at all. Um, and and so I think I think you're right. It, you, if, if for nothing, for no other reason, just to get back to the original intent of the original author, it's yeah. pretty it would, would would be a good thing. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really kind of gripped by this at the moment that that we wouldn't frighten people. You know, I've heard earlier in this year, um, the hashtag Rapture Anxiety started to trend on Twitter, and you know, Rapture Anxiety. So I actually wrote a blog on it last week, and it's on the website for anyone who wants to have a read of that. If you want some insight into the Rapture, have you got any comments, particularly on this Rapture of the Church? The problem with the word rapture is the is not the word, it's the dominant images associated with it, which is almost always we're getting out of here. Yeah. But that idea is nowhere in scripture. Um, so the idea, uh, the, the, the idea of rapture, where we get the word rapture from has to do with an ancient word that is romantic in nature. It literally means to pick your bride up. Yeah. So, so you have, um, you have something that was written as a love language thing, once again, turned into something to be terrified of. Um, the second uh, thought I would add to that is the is the dominant image of getting out of here. So one, it was meant as a love language thing, and then it's getting interpreted as something scary. Second, the escapism part of it. Um, in in an ancient kingdom, um, when the king had to go on a trip, they would appoint watchmen, um, whose whole job was to watch for the return of the king. I mean, they've made movies about, literally called the return of the king. But the idea was when you saw the king coming back, you would announce his coming with blows of trumpets and loud announcements you wanted. And then the, the people loyal to the king would rush out to meet him. But it wasn't to go somewhere else. He'd already been somewhere else. It was to usher him back in. Yeah. And so the idea is, is that, is Jesus returning? Yes. Is it for us to escape? No, it's coming here. And because heaven's coming to earth here, we should be prepping this place the best we can it be like if if a if a dignitary was coming to your home, you, you would likely clean it. You know, you yeah. would you would likely it would probably it would probably look better than it normally does. <laughs> like yeah. it, it's it's that. Um, yeah. And so um, and so what I would have those two thoughts on rapture that that what was originally intended as it, it had clear in ancient Hebrew, the, the, the word really isn't in the scripture. It's more of a catching up. And yeah. that, that word catching up is, is the same word they would have used at the end of a wedding ceremony when a husband, the new husband and wife, who would have been 13, um, when they went to the, the marriage chamber, he would, uh, I think in, in, in the Western world, we call it carrying them under the threshold. So you, over, you, yeah. you yeah, carry them over the th threshold, uh, it's, you know, which is a good idea for some, I, I mean, others, that's probably not good. Probably ought to, you might want to give her a piggyback, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, so, I was going to say, I was scared to do that when, when, when Christy yeah, yeah. frightened up a dropper or something, you know, I'm like, ah! This could, I, ain't, I ain't that strong. So, but it, um, but it's this. It, it it was that. It was that idea. So, what had clear um, love relationship, um, intimate connotations 
Yeah. It's somehow being interpreted as scary. That's one. Two, it's um, um, it, it has nothing to do with escaping. It has everything to do with being. And actually, I'll add one more thought to it. You know, the, the, the parable where Jesus talks about the, that day and he says, he says, when the kingdom comes, um, it's, it's like two guys. And once again, it's a parable. This is a made up story to make mm-hmm. a point. He says it's like two guys are in a field and um, one disappears and one is left. Well, in Jewish consciousness, you want to be the one left. Yeah. Because the one who disappears is some, for some reason not welcome in God's good world. Um, and then and suddenly in the last 180 years, the idea of being left behind became the bad thing. But in Jewish consciousness, you don't want to be the one left. I mean, back to the earth. You want to be the one left. And so, um, and so it, once again, um, it's, the problem is not the words. The problem is the dominant images that come to our mind when we say those words. So when we, and then we start mixing those two words, apocalypse and rapture. Well, then yeah. that the questions that make no sense, like, does God get us out of here before the whole thing blows up? Well, now you've taken two really fallacious ideas and you've mixed them into one of the scariest things possible. Yeah. And, uh, and it lead, it's just, it's, it's, and it, it, frankly, I think it just makes us look silly. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. What did the Jews think of when they thought of heaven? So, um, so heaven was a, a very general term that could have meant a lot of things. That's why it gets so confusing. Um, they, they were very um, uh, resistant to saying the word God. As a matter of fact, Orthodox Jews today, if they write you an email and they use the word God, they'll put G hyphen D. The idea that they would even spell that. Um, uh, I, I was talking to a rabbi once and he was on a, he was on a bus tour um, in, um, in, in Israel with a bunch of evangelical Christians from the South. And they thought they would honor this Jewish tradition. Um, um, they were in Israel. And so they started, they had researched some song and the song was called, his name is Yahweh. We bless you. Yahweh. Well, they didn't, the, the Jews on the bus can't say that. So they're, the, yeah. every time they're saying it, they're covering their head. Um, and so these people were good hearted. They were trying to honor it. Um, and so uh, sometimes they used the word heaven just as a euphemism for God. So they would say they, they would say, uh, um, but, you know, may heaven bless you with something. Well, that just means God bless you. Um, the, the other thing w- w- would be um, when they talked about the rule of God, they could say the kingdom of God. But they were more often likely to say kingdom of heaven for the same reason. You, you can't really. Yeah. You don't want to say God too much. If we say God too much, it demeans it, it, its meaning. And and then of course, and then of course, heaven um, could be used as a um, as a description of what will life be like when the rule of God is completely on the earth. Um, what would that What would that be like? Um, and they they didn't they didn't really call that heaven. I don't mind calling it heaven. I think it's a good name for it. They they called it the Olam Haba, the the world to come. And in the world to come, um, those of us who've consented and and aligned ourselves with God's good ways, um, the world we're experiencing at that point is heaven. 
It's it's um it's a world it's a world where um God's rule and God's reign um gets submitted to across the board. Um, but but while somehow everybody keeps their free will, which is which is interesting too. In other words, people are choosing to consent to what it means to be the fullness of humanity that God made us to be. That God doesn't make us, and that that's one of the problems with um, with with some thoughts on heaven is it's almost like we become angels, and, mm. and you see that you see that in metaphors. Sometimes you'll go, some a loved a loved one will die. And yeah. somebody on Facebook will go, heaven just got another angel. And look, I'm not upset with those people. They're grieving and they're celebrating their loved one. And I get it. But the, the idea is never that we become angelic beings, but rather we engage into a fullness of what God originally intended humanity to be. And when that happens, they envision that as some place that would be unbelievable. So they called it heaven. Okay. Interesting yeah. thought there, though. So free will still exists. What if someone uses their free will to sin and the whole thing has to start again? Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. Uh, you see you, you, so, you see that in some of the descriptions of of um you know how um satan fell and you know he used his uh his it, the pride somehow in heaven pride lifted up in him um you also see that uh these images at the end of the book of revelation too where um um hell and death have been destroyed yeah. um in revelation 20 and then all things are made new um, and, and it's like this, this finally heaven has come to the earth. Finally, this, the, the, the tabernacle of God is finally with man, which is why I sort of take that, that view. I sort of see the, um, I don't take it. I sort of see the idea that he's talking about the temple being destroyed and now the tabernacle has come to me. But what, however you read it, the, the end of revelation 21 is this, this cosmic divine relief of, oh, finally, the tabernacle of God's with men. But then if you keep reading, it says that there are people outside the gates. There's sorcerers, sexually immoral thieves, anyone who loves and practices a lie. And so the question is, where'd they come from? You know, did they get out of hell? Because hell's been destroyed. Or did they somehow um, quit consenting to God's ways and they're finding themselves outside of the city? Um, now that it does end with good news though, because it says, and the spirit and the bride compel them to come. come. Um, so, uh, you know, um, yes, I'm not, I don't know. Right. Any, anytime, we, anytime we're talking about um, things that have to do after death, I, I, I'm the first to admit I'm guessing. Um, but, but that's why my message is today and always will be. And so is yours uh, is urgently respond to Jesus today. Yeah, uh, because and and I would say for all three of us as well, and keep responding. Yeah. Like as Paul said in Colossians, just as you receive Christ, so continue to walk in Him. Like yeah. all all of us received Christ, whatever our story is, by responding to God. And so Paul's admonition to the people of Colossae is uh, is is you you received Christ by responding, keep responding, because the, the the tragedy at the end of the Book of Revelation, however they got there, is that at some point they quit responding. And then, then, it, then what you see is you see the spirit and the bride compelling them to come in. And it doesn't say they immediately jump up and run in. It, and, and it just says, don't add or subtract from this. So I, I, and I think that's a great way to leave that is to go, is to go, you never want to go deaf to God's nudging on your life. Or one day he might be screaming at you and you can't hear it. And that would be tragic. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely spot on. Yeah. I, I love that. The purpose of the two witnesses and who are they is another question that I received. Okay, so uh, so there would be uh, there'd be um, a, a segment of fully devoted followers of Jesus who would have been trying to figure out who these people are literally, and some would say they're reembodiments of certain prophets like Elijah, Moses, whatever, um, and and Amen, maybe. Uh, uh, and then there's another group that would say, actually, if the whole book of Revelation is theopoetic apocalyptic literature, then they represent something. Um, and so though I think it's important to remember the context. So the context quickly is um, is there's an angel that's given a message from God and and then he eats it, which is obviously uh, a uh, um, a remez uh, in um in, in, in Hebrew hermeneutics, a remez is a hint or an allusion uh, to something. And, um, and so this is obviously an allusion to Ezekiel when Ezekiel had to eat the, um, and it was sweet to his mouth, but bitter to his belly. And yep. so, um, and then there's quite a bit of plagues that come around, um, which is obviously a remez to the plagues from Egypt. Um, there's there's 21 different sort of plagues, three sets of seven, and, and they sound incredibly familiar to the plagues of Egypt, that water turning to blood, the locusts, the bugs, the anyway. So they, they're doing this. And I think, in my opinion, the bigger story is, and although I would respect somebody who reads it differently, um, the, the, the bigger story is, um, is that judgment and punishment never gets to the result you're looking for. That just like in Egypt, 10 goes and they still didn't repent. And the book of Revelation keeps making this point. They still did not repent. 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 So then there's these two witnesses that come along and um, and the beast kills them uh, just like he killed Jesus. Um, and for, I think I'd have to go back and look, I think it's three days um, yeah. uh, that uh, they actually sort of throw what sounds like a party around these guys' body. They're exchanging exchange gifts with each other, and yeah. yeah, it's a terrible thing. Um, and and then, but then they're hu- not the judgment and the punishment, but the humility and the service of humanity ends up winning out. And so, I think figuring out who they are is less important than asking ourselves, what is that passage doing in me right now? And I think there's a few questions that could be asked. One, am I trying to accomplish God's purposes in my world through judgment and punishment? Um, Because what you find in the book of Revelation and in the book of Exodus is that even when the judgment and punishment is righteous, it doesn't work. It's Mm -hmm. not, it'll work as punishment, but it doesn't work to get the heart change. Um, what ends up working is the humble sacrifice and service of the slain lamb, um, the the canonic, cruciform, pure love God revealed in Christ. So you have you have that. Um, well, that's one. Am I trying to accomplish God's purposes through judgment and punishment? Um, two. Um, do do I am I saying God, Jesus, Bible, Scripture, truth? Um, but when you look at my actions, I I'm acting like the beast instead of the slain. In other words, my life is affirming the narrative of the beast instead of the slain lamb. And I think third, um, Revelation eleven, I think is where this is. Um, there's there's some really good lessons in there that confront transactional theology. If bad things are happening, it's because you did something wrong. If good things are happening, it's because you did something right. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, the, the, the whole book of Job uh, confronts this. That, that's, I think, at the most elemental level, that's what's going on in the book of Job, um, mm-hmm. is 37 chapters of, um, of you did something. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. You probably don't remember, but you did. No, I didn't. And then like 37 chapters into it, the God character shows up and says, actually, Job's right. And then, of course, Jesus addresses it in, in Luke where he says, the, the building that fell on people, do you think you're more righteous than them? Like, mm. can't, in other words, you can't tell how God feels about people um, by the circumstances. And so one of the lessons of the two witnesses to me is you have people who are doing what God's called them to do, and it doesn't work out. And um, and the beast kills them, and there's this incredible suffering. And, and, and so from the outside, it looks like, well, maybe they weren't doing what God called them to do. But that's actually, I think part of the point is, is sometimes you're right in the middle of what God's called you to do. And suffering is that God is not somebody that always rescues us from suffering. Rather, he's someone who's ever present with us in it, um, which leads me to a fourth application, which would be, um, and I think this is a massive, massive, and I, I would actually not right now, cause that's not the purpose right now, but I would love to hear, um, Tal's take on, on where the Western church, I think misses it with their absence of a good theology of grief. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. And particularly the contemporary church, the evangelical charismatic Pentecostal. Yeah. I've they they don't have a great theology of suffering and grief. We we have we have a very good victory mm. mindset, but I I watch I watch Christians walk away sometimes from God during suffering because yeah. they have no theology that life could be tough or unpredictable. You know, I hear people say, yeah. you know, I decree this, I declare this in the name of Jesus, and then it doesn't necessarily turn out how they've decreed or declared it to be. And it ends up with disillusionment. Yeah. I mean, Paul was tortured to death. I don't think he had a faith problem. Jesus was tortured to death. I don't think he had a faith problem. Um, I I would also venture out to say that Peter and Philip and, and you read some of their histories on how they died. I don't think they had a faith problem Um, in, in, in this theopoetic archetype. You have two witnesses who are doing what they're supposed to do. And, and there's some suffering. And and um, and if if I I would submit to Tal's understanding of this, but um, my understanding of Jewish grief, um, it, and they do it so well, is it goes through four stages. You have um, death to burial, um, which it, which you're given the gift of privacy and identifying with your pain. Um, and then the second step is um, burial to something called sitting shiva, where um, where my job as your friend, if I could use uh, modern nomenclature, is, is to, I, I don't have to solve the problem, but I give you the gift of my presence in it, um, that, uh, that I don't speak, I, I don't speak to you, I, um, I, uh, n- unless I need to, or you want me to, it's just, you will not be alone in, in this, um, no, there's no, in other words, no expectation on words, is my understanding too is that I also would tear my clothes and and put ashes on. the The idea is because when someone weeps, the muscles in the face do weird things, and so and so to give you the freedom to weep, I'd want to become uh, the ugliest person in the room so that people look at me and not use that you're free to weep. It's a beautiful thing. Then you have burial to one month where you're given a grace, where you're like you're invited to things, but you're given a grace to to not come and then there's burial to one year where you're given a voice 
um, where the grieving person is assigned a minion um, or a small, a 10 men, so a small group um, to uh, to say your prayers for you. And, and, and my point isn't uh, uh, to um, be pedantic about the correctness of it, but to point out that in that incredible, uh, incredible tradition, you, you have a great theology of how we can handle each other's suffering without having to be the solution or give the answers to everything, but rather give the gift of our presence in it. And and yeah. I think I think the two witnesses um, do that. And I, I, and I actually would also say that that you see that in um, in God at the cross, where w- when 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 Christ dies, the temple veil tears, which was like a tearing of of and and obviously the symbolism is very rich in grief. The reason they tore their clothes was. A, a symbolic uh, truth around um, letting the outer shell, like, like let just l- let it go. And then they would, then they would cry, they would cry out. So they would first tear their clothes and then they would cry out, which I think the Hebrew there is cry, which sounds really, really cool. Um, and they, uh, and that's what you see at the cross is God tearing his clothes and crying out. Um, and, and, and I think we, we could learn a lot from that instead of trying to do mental hula hoops as to why my faith was deficient because it didn't all work out, but rather see God as that which is rendering even the suffering meaningful and being in the middle of it with us, gifting us with his presence. And that's what we should do for others. Yeah. And that draws us to God rather than repel us from him because we have a good understanding. What about the everlasting open gates mentioned? Or have you really covered that? I think I did. I, well, at least all I'm understanding about what what you find at the end of the book of Revelation is hell and death have been destroyed, and I think it's it's really important to to remind ourselves that um, that in the early church they were very clear to distinguish that Jesus was not ever saving us from God, but that God was in Christ reconciling the whole thing to Himself. Which leads to this question: Then what was Jesus saving us from? And the answer was sin, death, self, uh, the destroyer, um, Satan. Um, and so um, and so at the end, you see this incredible victory where death and hell are destroyed and heaven is finally on the earth. Um, but I, I love the way the Eastern Orthodox talk about that, um, that consent always waits on consent. In other words, if love is consent, then it allows you to non-consent. Which, which is interesting, the Eastern Orthodox Church also defines the wrath of God as the self-inflicted consequences of being handed over to the consequences of non-consent to consent, um, which is, I think, a beautiful sort of profound way. Um, the intrinsic consequences of being handed over to the self-inflicted consequences of non-consent to consent, that when God consents and waits for you to consent, that in non-consent, you're sort of, as Jesus said to Paul in Acts 12, I think it was, it only hurts you to kick against the goads. Yeah. So, so if if there's always consent and non-consent, in other words, I'll, I'll use today's language. If there if there is a heaven, then there has to be a hell because there has to be a condition or a state where if you're going to consistently non-consent, there are self-inflicted consequences of being handed over to the consequences of non-consent to consent. Yeah. But, yeah. but what you find in the end of Revelation is, is death and hell have been destroyed and you got this heaven on the earth and it has a gate around it, but the gates never shut. 
And, and I think that in, in the most elemental way, it's this beautiful symbolism of um, if anybody gets thirsty for God, he doesn't cast them aside. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that we are called to respond today and keep responding um, yeah. because th- this is uh, Jesus did not come to save us from an angry God, but to show us what God was always like since before the foundation of the world. And yeah. um, otherwise we have a, otherwise we have an atonement theory that says God is infinitely less grumpy now that he tortured somebody, which. Yeah. <laughs> tell me, tell, yeah. you know, tell me we're past that one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, I mean, again, this is an area of growth, isn't it? In your theology, that that um, you see God so much more loving, but yeah. but loving is inadequate. A statement. It's like I hear people saying, you know, God is good, and and my response quite often to that is, yes, He is, and that's one of the biggest understatements of the year. You know, because yeah. good, but He is so much better than good. Yeah, and once you realize that that God doesn't have to actively punish sin because sin has its wages built into it and it's called death. And once you see that, and then you realize that Jesus came to save us from the wages of sin, not from God, God was in Christ saving us from the wages of sin. Um, That when we kick against the goads to use Paul's words there in um, Acts 12, um, it opens us up. And, and almost all of Paul's writings, um, the wrath of God was described as a handing over. Um, same in Isaiah. It says, therefore, mm-hmm. God handed them over to the consequences of, in other words, God's, God's got this everlasting stream of mercy and invitation into life and light. And, but he waits. He consents to our non-consent. And so if love is consent, so is wrath. But so then, in Romans 1, where it talks about God handing people over, handing he, over. Just, he just handing them to what they've consented for. Right. They're getting what they want. Hmm. And so, and so, um, and I would add, I would add one more element to it that God is so loving. He's willing to wear the fact that people think he's doing it. So, so, uh, and Isaiah called that in his prophecy. Um, Isaiah said that Messiah would come and suffer greatly for humanity. And this is the next line word for word. And we will think God did it to him. But it wow. wasn't God. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded for our. In other words, it was it, it it wasn't God actively getting his pound of flesh so he could forgive people. It was God in Christ reconciling the whole thing to Himself. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that scripture, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting people's sins against them. Yeah. And it's sad that that so often we uh, Christians are known as sin counters. You know, it's like. Right. When when I, I just wrote one of my new sermons I wrote this year um, was on First Corinthians 13, 5. It says love keeps no record of wrongs. And the idea is, is that when, when I was a kid, I was told by my granny, Shane, careful, because even when granny can't see you, God sees. And there's two problems with that. One, the finger. Right. Uh, yeah. This sort of idea that God's a far off. God is watching us from a distance. You know. Yeah. Um, that, that's problematic. The other thing is that all lies have at least 80% truth to them or they don't have the traction, right? And so is it true that God sees everything? Yes, it is. Is it true that we should keep our God consciousness? Yes, it is. Is it true that we should never separate God here and not there? Absolutely, that's true. But if that's all we ever heard without any emphasis on in his love and in his consent, he chooses to keep no record of wrongs. We end up with a Santa Claus blend 
um, scorekeeping, yeah. list making God. Matter of fact, this is you'll you'll find this funny because I know this would have happened to you at some point, unless you just didn't at all have anything to do with church when you were a kid. But when I was seven. My Sunday school teacher told me, Shane, one day God's going to put your entire life on a giant video camera and show everybody. And I remember even being seven going, God, how boring would that be? Like, I just did some quick math and went, hang on, 7 billion in the world today, 15, 20 billion over the course and average lifespan today, 80, average lifespan over the course of, uh, of the world, probably somewhere around 40 you imagine like we'll be 10 billion years into heaven. They'll be like, okay, next up is Tong Nguyen from uh, Cambodia. And uh, he lived 81 years and everybody sit back and relax. We're going to watch his whole life. And it's like, oh my Lord, how boring is this? That that sounds more like hell than heaven to me. Yeah, <laughs> and so but the, the, the idea that we'd ever want a relationship with somebody who's publicly shaming us is a whole nother thing. And so when people said, I walked away from that God, part of me goes, that tells me you're mentally healthy. Yeah. Because that God should be walked away from. But I think, yeah. I think one of the things we can remember is, is that as true as it is that God knows everything, it's also equally profoundly true that in his love and consent, he chooses to keep no record of wrongs. In other words, we can say it this way, if love doesn't keep score, God doesn't. And here's why that's important. Because if we believe God keeps score, we'll justify keeping score with each other. And that creates a terrible world. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Digging Deeper is a weekly podcast that is uploaded every Wednesday. If you love this podcast, please let other people know about it. And you can rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to speak into, get in touch with us via Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. In next week's episode of Digging Deeper, Pastor Rob will address questions on the Bible, polygamy, and hypocritical prayer. We hope you can join us then.